0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, this morning we are going to be looking at the first seven verses. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7, this is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel Well, this is the first Sunday in what the church traditionally has called the Advent season. It's a tradition that goes back at least to about 400 AD. It's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas Day. And we spend them focusing upon the significance of the unique Son of God coming into the world by means of the Incarnation. God the Son taking on human flesh, being born of a virgin. The word Advent itself means coming. And while we do focus primarily during these four weeks leading up to Christmas Day on the first coming of Christ over 2,000 years ago, we also, during this season, are often reminded that we're still anxiously awaiting a second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to complete the work that he started. As children, this idea of the Advent season being a time of anxiously waiting is something that is deeply ingrained in their psyche, but for them in the beginning, it's mostly about a decorated tree with a lot of shiny gifts underneath it. It is our prayer that as our children grow older, that joy in the gifts under the tree becomes a greater, much more valuable joy in the gift of God's Son for our salvation. It is, as we talk about Advent, we are reminded as followers of Jesus Christ that our whole life is to be spent in deep thankfulness for something that happened long ago, the death of Christ on the cross that enabled us to be saved, and something that will happen hopefully soon in the future. When he comes a second time to bring to completion our salvation. We did not see Christ die on the cross. We cannot currently see Christ coming on the clouds with the saints in all of his glory. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 and 7 say this. While we are at home in the body, in other words while we are still living as sinners in a fallen world in this life. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. A follower of Jesus Christ walks through this life by faith and not by sight. Our hope, and really our worldview, our values, are all based in things that we know by believing God's word, not by what we see with our eyes what we can touch with our hands, what we can taste with our mouths, what we can hear with our ears. We walk by faith, not by sight or hearing or tasting or touching. We know Christ has died for our sins, that he's raised from the dead for our justification, that he's coming again to defeat sin and death, to judge the world and to complete our salvation. That's the faith that we live by, that we walk by. Here in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 it gives a definition of this faith and it's not a complete definition. If you go to the rest of scripture you'll find that there are other aspects of true saving faith that other parts of scripture talk about but here the the writer of, of Hebrews focuses in on this idea that faith means walking in according to things that we cannot see or sense touch feel hear. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I actually like that translation. I I, I like the the New International Version's translation of that verse. I like just a little better. It's a little simpler, a little more easy to remember, and I've always remembered it this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, I have to admit that if you take that verse out of context and look at it just as itself, it's not distinctly Christian, is it? Practically anybody would have to agree with that statement. An atheist, a Hindu, a Muslim would agree with the statement that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. But that's where you have to put this verse in the context of scripture. Because we don't believe in faith. We don't think faith is faith in faith. We believe that faith is in something far greater. This culture tends to elevate faith as though it's something you have faith. It doesn't matter what you have faith in as long as you have faith. Faith is what's important. It doesn't matter what the object of that faith is. That's not what scripture teaches. It's crucial. Your eternal well-being rests upon what object, what is the object of your faith. Adam and Eve they believed in the word of Satan. They put their faith in a lie and therefore they rebelled and brought all of creation under a curse. They did not believe what God told them. They did not believe in God's word. They believed in the lie of Satan and this is the mess that we've ended up with. It is crucial that you put your faith in in the right object. And the context of Hebrews 11 is you need to put your faith in the Word of God. The Word of God tells you what reality is beyond the physical. The Word of God tells us what's real beyond what you can taste, touch, feel, hear. And so what we must walk by is what the Word of God tells us. That's if you go back to the beginning of Hebrews, back to chapter 1. That's how he writes. The writer here starts by saying. Long ago at many times. And in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son. He starts there. God has spoken. Put your faith in his word. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through. The apostles. He spoke through. Jesus Christ the final word the word of God. Now to understand the book of Hebrews you need to understand who it was written to. We don't know for sure who wrote it. Many people believe it was Paul. It's one of Paul's epistles and that could be. There are some reasons that that scholars think maybe it wasn't written by Paul but maybe another apostle or a close associate of an apostle all scripture, all New Testament was written either by an apostle or a close associated apostle basically relating to us the apostle's teaching but whoever it was we know who this this writer was writing to he was writing to Christians but Christians who grew up Jewish Christians who came from a Jewish background Christians who were taught the Old Testament and believed first century Judaism but had also added to that, had come to understand and believe that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and they accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And so these are Jewish Christians he's writing to, but these Christians had been spread, we know from the first century, from the book of Acts, they had been spread by persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And as they went out, they continued to be persecuted and as they faced trials and suffering and being cast out of their homeland and and all the, the struggles, they began to doubt. They began to doubt God's word. They began to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were tempted to go back to their comfortable first century Judaism, that religion that they had been part of, and reject Christ. They had lost jobs. They'd lost possessions. They'd lost family members. Some of them lost people very close to them. And it was tempting to give up what the world was attacking, which was Christ and the gospel. This epistle, if you know the book of Hebrews, it's full of pleas to these Jewish Christians to not give up their hope in Christ, to not reject Christ, to stay with Christ, to follow Christ, to trust him even in the face of all their suffering. And it's also full of warnings that if they reject Christ, if they depart from Christ, those who reject Christ will come under God's judgment. And so you have both these pleas and these warnings throughout the book. Having said that God has spoken, he says that God's final word is his son, and he says in chapter 1 that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. How could you give up Christ? He goes on to say in chapters 1 2, And beyond that Christ is far superior to the prophets. Christ is far superior to the angels. Christ is far superior to Moses. Christ is far superior to Joshua. He goes on to say that Jesus Christ is the great high priest. The ultimate high priest. Who offered the final ultimate sacrifice of his own blood. To atone for our sins. He now serves in a greater heavenly temple. And he has established the fullness of the covenant, a better covenant, the new covenant. And so in light of that, the writer says in chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That brings me to the immediate context of chapter 11. We're going to spend this Advent season looking at chapter 11 of Hebrews. But the immediate context is the end of chapter 10. In light of all of that, listen to what he says beginning in verse 35 of chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, And will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Saying to these Jewish Christians, don't shrink back from the gospel, don't shrink back from Christ. But we are not. He says, he's identifying, I have confidence that you will hold on to your faith confidence that the Lord will hold you so that's the context and you realize you know he's quoting there interestingly he's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk from the Old Testament the coming one will come my righteous one shall live by faith in the book of Romans Paul quotes that as the gospel we are given the gift of righteousness by the gift of faith When we put our faith in Christ, we are given the gift of Christ's righteousness. And having been given the gift of his righteousness through faith, we are given a heart to pursue righteousness. And so the life of faith is living by the unseen. Seeing the spiritual realm as God's word describes it as real as the physical realm that we interact with every day that God exists, according to verse 6, God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That he will fulfill his promises. We can be sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. I'm reminded of that wise quote from the elf, Judy, in that classic Christian Christmas movie, The Santa Claus, where she says to Scott Calvin, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing doesn't go that far in terms of truth but you see it reflects what Hebrews is saying by faith you see what's real spiritually what are those unseen truths well that's what chapter 11 is about he starts out by introducing this idea and then he gives examples from the old testament of saints who lived by faith even under the old covenant In in chapter 6 verses 11 and 12, this is what he says. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what the rest of chapter 11 is about. That we look at those who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God in the Old Testament. In the days before Christ came the first time. They were waiting not only for Christ's second coming. To bring the fullness of salvation. They were still waiting for his first coming. To bring atonement for sin. To save us from sin and death. They waited. They hoped. They persevered. Because they believed God's word. They believed God's promise. It says verse 2. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. Old Testament saints, people who believed in the promise of a coming Messiah were saved on the same basis that you and I are saved. We look back to our Messiah, they were looking forward to their Messiah, and we both look forward to the final coming. It says there, uh, this is totally an aside, just as silly as a Santa Claus quote, but doing the language study in the original Greek, I noticed that the word when it says people of old, though the uh, the actual quote is, for by faith the people of old receive their commendation. In the original uh, Greek, the word there is the word from which we get Presbyterian. Which means to me, that's one of the lessons I take from this, is that all saints should be Presbyterians. Is that No, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the right way to interpret it. it. People of old, it would be those people who lived in olden days, our spiritual forefathers, is what it's talking about. Talking about the Old Testament, and that's the list that we're going to get our Old Testament brothers and sisters in faith. He goes through the list chronologically, but what's interesting, before he mentions any Old Testament believer, he actually talks about a foundational truth that any believer, Old Testament or New Testament, would need to believe. He begins with stating that God created all things. We know that by faith in God's word. That's the only way we can know it. We know it by faith in the word of God. That is how we are certain of what we cannot see. What we cannot sense with our five senses. We know it by faith. He says in verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He's stating the obvious truth that what you believe about the origins of the universe are hugely determinative about what you believe about everything. What you believe about how the world got here, how the universe got here, how you got here, what you believe about origins will determine your worldview. It will determine your values. It will determine your goals, your hopes for the future. The materialist atheist puts his faith in chance. That's how he believes everything got here. Random impersonal forces that accidentally led to the existence of all things that's a powerful faith. Wrong, but it's a powerful faith. And they will argue with you, but it is clearly obvious that if that's what you believe about the origins of the universe, it'll destroy any concept of value, any meaning or purpose to life, or it'll take away any hope for the future. But if God of the Bible, the God Yahweh of the Bible, is the creator that means that he is apart from creation he's not part of creation he's apart from it he's transcendent he is the sustainer of the creation he is the provider for all of creation he owns the universe and is sovereign over it and we are made in his image and we are made to seek him God has opened our spiritual eyes to see that. And it's changed everything. As Psalm 33 puts it, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You know, it's interesting that Job is not in this list, even though Job certainly was a man who walked by faith and was a righteous man in the Old Testament. He could have been in the list. Job was tested by God. He was actually tempted by Satan. Satan asked permission of God to be able to cause Job to suffer horrifically beyond our wildest imaginations What Job suffered. Satan's purpose in Job's suffering was to destroy his faith. God's purpose in allowing it was to test and strengthen his faith. But what's interesting is that Job did eventually start to doubt, just like these Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire were doubting their faith. And as Job was doubted, finally God speaks to him. And God speaks to him, beginning in chapter 38 of Job, and the first thing that he reminds Job about is that God had created the universe by his word. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. The point, foundational theological point that God was making to Job is you may not understand. As a matter of fact, there's a good chance you're not going to understand my purposes, especially in your suffering. But you can trust me because I'm your creator and I am sovereign and I am working all things for your good. So as you move from that basic teaching that God created all things by the power of his word so we can trust his word, we move to the first example of a person in the Old Testament. And the lesson there is that God accepts those who seek him by faith. God accepts those who seek him by faith. We can be certain of what we cannot see. It's interesting that, that the first example is not Adam and Eve. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Adam and Eve didn't have faith after their sin and rebellion and after uh, God didn't immediately cast them into hell and put them, uh, give them their deserved punishment. The point is that what they are known for is not for their faith but their unbelief. The story of the beginning of Genesis is how they didn't believe the word of God and as I said believed the lie of Satan. the writer skips over Adam and Eve, and again, I'm not saying Adam and Eve didn't eventually have faith in the promises, but he goes to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. He talks about Abel as a man of faith who walked by faith. And there isn't a lot told us in Genesis 4 about Abel, but it says that Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, they brought sacrifices to the Lord, an act of worship. It says in Genesis 4, it says, Cain was a worker of the ground, So for his sacrifice he brought the fruit of the ground. It says Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He was a shepherd. And so it says he brought the firstborn of his flock. And in Genesis 4 verses 4 and 5 it says this. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. The turning point. After God accepts Abel's sacrifice of the animal. And does not accept the sacrifice of the fruits and vegetables from from Cain. The turning point is that when God confronts Cain for his bad attitude, Cain does not repent, but instead murders his brother Abel. Abel was the first martyr for the faith. Abel believed the word of God, suffered for it, died for it. He was the first martyr. But God accepted Abel and his sacrifice, Scholars debate this, and I don't want to take too long on this, but in verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Now, many scholars, matter of fact, most of the, the commentators that I consulted uh, looking at this verse this week, say that the problem wasn't with the sacrifice, the problem was with Cain. That Abel came in faith with his sacrifice and Cain did not come in faith with his sacrifice. They say that because the context of Hebrews 11 is about those who have faith and those who don't, in contrast to those who don't. What they say is, based not, being careful not to do what we call eisegesis, reading meaning into the text as opposed to exegesis, taking meaning out of the text, that you don't want to read into this some later idea that, that wasn't intended in Genesis. But I think that both Genesis, uh, Moses writing Genesis, and the writer of Hebrews do see some significance not just to the faith of Abel, but the sacrifice that he offered. It says that God, the Lord. This is Genesis. This is from Genesis four. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and here in in Hebrews eleven four it says. Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. To me, it's making clear that it wasn't just Abel's faith, but also the nature of the sacrifice that he offered that caused him to be accepted by God. I just remind you, and again, you gotta be careful not to read this in, but even most scholars agree that there's significance to the fact that the first blood that was shed after the fall of man was not Abel's blood by Cain, but the blood of the animal that was shed that gave enabled God to cover the shame, the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve that they felt due to the guilt of their sin. God sacrificed an animal, shed the blood of an animal, so that their shame, from guilt from their sin, could be covered. That, that is in the background of Cain and Abel. We also know that from the very beginning, the people of faith that are described in the book of Genesis offered sacrifices, animal sacrifices, as part of their worship to God. We're going to see that, you know, when you look at Noah, Noah offered an animal sacrifice when he came off the ark. Abraham offered animal sacrifices. This is all long before the law of Moses and the priesthood and the Levitical priesthood and the temple and the the legislated sacrificial system. From the very beginning, I believe, that it was taught to God's people. And again, it's not clearly taught in Scripture. I could be wrong. I, I always want to say that a little bit of speculation but I think from the beginning it was always it communicated somehow to God's people that blood sacrifice was necessary for salvation and you know John Owen and since I agree with John Owen I'm given a lot more confidence on this John Owen points to chapter 9 verse 22 where he, where the writer is saying that the whole Old Testament teaches that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins That's the message of the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And even if you say, well, the context of Hebrews 11 is about faith, the the faith, believing in the unseen, but you have to put it in the the, the broader context of the book of Hebrews. Chapters 7 through 10 are all about Christ, our great high priest, offering up himself as a sacrifice. That's the, the, the context of Hebrews 11. So I do believe there's significance it says in, nine, chapter, in chapter 9, verse 26, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My point in all of this is that we can be sure of what we do not see, which is that God accepts us. That's important that you believe that as a sinner who continues to struggle with sin every day. That when God looks at you, he is not looking at you in anger as a disobedient criminal. He's smiling upon you in love because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the guilt of your sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ. He accepts you. God, every moment of every day, accepts you as you believe his word about the gospel, about the work of Christ, dying for your sins. That acceptance, that sense of acceptance by God can overcome any psychological or spiritual malady that you struggle with. That God accepts you completely. You are adopted by grace. You are a son of God. It gives you peace. It gives you joy. It gives you contentment. That's what Abel still speaks to us. God accepts us because of what Christ has done for us. The third thing we know by faith in these examples is that by faith we will overcome death. We can be sure of what we hope for when it comes to death. He uses the example of Enoch. Interesting that he picks Enoch. Enoch, we know very, much less even about Enoch than we knew about Abel because he shows up in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is at long genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. In the middle of that genealogy, Moses pauses for a minute to mention Enoch. We know that Enoch was the great-great-great-great-grandson of Adam. What's interesting is because the first people lived so much longer than we do, Adam was actually still alive while Enoch was alive. Matter of fact, Adam was still on the earth after Enoch was gone. But the important thing in the genealogy about Enoch is it it says in chapter 5 of Genesis that he walked with God. Matter of fact, it says it twice. We only have a couple of verses about Enoch, but it says twice in in a couple of verses he walked with God, which is the way the Bible talks about walking consistently by faith, being pleasing to God because of our faith. As it says in verses 5 and 6, he pleased God and without faith it is impossible to please him. But then he mentions the one strange detail of Enoch's life. When Enoch was just a young man, 365 years old, (laughs) just just a young whippersnapper. He, um, it says in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, lest there, that's kind of vague language there, lest there be any doubt what that means, and there never really has been a doubt what that means, but the writer here in Hebrews 11 says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Think about it. Only Enoch and Elijah were taken directly to heaven without dying. Now, there's some theological mystery there. Don't ask me after the service. I don't, there's some implications of Enoch and Elijah going directly to heaven without dying. I don't know how to answer those questions. The Bible doesn't try to answer them. The point is, you and I don't need to fear death if we walk by faith. We don't need to fear death. There's one other group of people in the Bible that haven't lived yet who are also going to go directly into a state of perfection and blessing in the presence of God for eternity. That's going to be people who are alive when Christ returns. They're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. And they'll be given their resurrection bodies. They won't have to die. So what this... The weird event of Enoch going to, death, going to heaven without dying, it foreshadows Christ's victory over death at the cross and his resurrection. And it foreshadows the fact that when he comes again, those who are alive and believe in him and put their faith in him will not die either. We don't need to fear death, and yet the world around us is terrified by it. Just study your culture a little bit. Just look at it from that perspective. They are terrified of dying. But what Hebrews teaches us back in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, is about what Christ has done for us in regard to the fear of death. It says, Since therefore the children, us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what Enoch speaks to us today. You don't need to fear death. Because Christ has overcome. Interestingly, there's only one other thing we know about Enoch, and you may not have ever noticed this. There's one other mention of Enoch, it's in the New Testament. It's in the book of Jude. And in Jude, the book of Jude, there is a mention, he's talking about the, the eternal condemnation of false teachers who don't repent of their false teaching. In that context, he mentions Enoch as a prophet. Listen to what he says. This is Jude beginning in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And that's it. We have one prophecy. Enoch was a prophet. We have one prophecy from him, and it's about something else that we can't see or taste or touch or hear something that we can only know because God has said it is true and it is coming and that is the second coming of Christ and that brings us to our final example in this passage in verse 7 an example that teaches us that judgment day is coming we can be sure of what we hope for we don't need to fear death because we can be sure of what we hope for when it comes to death we don't need to fear the second coming because we can be sure that it is coming And that the blood of Christ will cover our sin on that day. In Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that, like Enoch, Noah walked with God. He lived in a time of extreme wickedness when all flesh had corrupted their way on earth, according to Genesis 6, when all the imaginations of the minds of the people were only evil. It was a dark, wicked, horrible, violent age. He lived by faith in God's word. In that context, it says here that in chapter eleven, Hebrews eleven, that he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. He believed the warning of God, even though he couldn't see these events. And this judgment again. Remember now, Enoch was the great great grandfather of Noah. The first fulfillment of Enoch's prophecy. prophecy was the flood in Noah's day. God promised judgment. He would destroy the earth by a worldwide flood. Noah believed, and, and Enoch prophesied. And that is throughout Scripture, from that point on, the flood that destroyed all of humanity in Noah's day is a foreshadowing of the great final day when Christ will return but Noah walked by faith. It says, by faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. I mean, I want you to just think for a moment that Noah built that ark at least 100 miles inland with no sign of the flood for a very long time. It took him a very long time to build that ark. He did it in faith, believing in the unseen, believing the word of God in spite of the wicked culture around him. It's interesting in 2 Peter 2 we're told that that, uh, Noah, he's referred to as a herald or a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6 doesn't explicitly say that, but it's confirmed by the Apostle Peter that he preached the gospel. He preached this message that we're talking about. He preached it to the wicked people around him, called upon them to repent, to turn before judgment came. He was faithful not only to believe God's word, but to spread God's word. We hope in the coming judgment. It makes a big difference to your worldview to know that judgment is coming. When you see all the wickedness, violence, oppression, disgustingness of sin around you, it's important to know that Judgment Day is coming. God's word will be vindicated. His law will be held up as the ultimate standard of justice and justice will be done. All wrongs will be made right because we know that judgment day is coming. But we also know that we deserve that judgment. And if Christ had not shed his blood for our sin, we would be lost for eternity like the rest of humanity. That's where it says, talking about Peter's message, or I mean um, Noah's message He says here, by this, Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received the promise. He became an heir of the righteousness that can only come by believing God's word through the blood of the Messiah. Like Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What we learned in Ephesians the last several months as we've been reading Ephesians, especially from Ephesians 2, is that faith is a gift of God. We're not born with faith. We're born spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2. God gives us a gift of faith, which means he opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He takes away our stone heart and gives us a heart of flesh so that we see, hear, understand the truth of what he has said and what he has promised. And then we build our life upon his word. That's what it means to walk by faith. To see the unseen by faith. By faith, we have learned from the exa- just the examples already given in Hebrews 11. By faith, we see that God created all things by his word alone, out of nothing. By faith, we know that God accepts us completely based upon our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. By faith, we know that we don't need to fear death, that we will overcome death because we have been raised with Christ. By faith, we know that he's coming again to bring judgment upon sin, to do away, to purge the earth, the whole universe of the effects of sin, and to bring the fullness of our salvation, including our resurrection bodies, so that we can live in his perfect forever kingdom. We believe in the unseen. It's not easy. It's not easy to live based on what you can't see. That's a hard life. As If any of you have walked as a Christian very long, you know that's not easy. When I graduated from high school, I was a brand new Christian. I knew very little about scripture, and I was very misunderstood by my friends. But when I graduated, I got a gift from an unbelieving friend. This is is a friend of mine who did not believe. But she gave me a plaque, and it meant, I still have it. It meant a lot to me. On that plaque was a quote from Henry David Thoreau. And this is what it said. You probably heard it before. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it's because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music he hears, however measured or far away. I march to the beat of Jesus Christ. I trust his word, and because I trust his word, I can see the spiritual realm, things that have happened in the past that I can't verify with my five senses, things that he's promised will happen in the future that I cannot verify with my five senses, but God's word has proved to be strong, powerful, and transformative, and that's where I put my faith, and I trust that you have too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking. We were lost in sin and darkness, groping for answers, and you spoke. You spoke through the prophets. You spoke through the apostles. You spoke finally the final word, the word of God, Jesus Christ, your son. And Lord, you have opened our eyes to see that he is who he claimed to be and he did for us what he claimed to do. Father, I pray that as we continue to look at these examples of Old Testament saints who lived and walked by faith, that our own faith would grow deeper and stronger. We look forward to what you have to teach us about seeing the unseen by trusting in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.